Well, my goodness, do you believe in love at first sight? <laughs> I didn't. I really didn't. But last night I went uh, back to the hotel and I said to my husband, I'm in love. I said to him, I'm in love with what God is doing at this church. I'm in love with what I sense of God in this place. I said, Derek. <laughs> I said, Derek, it has been confusing to me because prior to coming here, I had some pretty clear plans for my life and what I was thinking about doing. And I said to Derek, you know, it's putting everything in question for me. God's moving in Minnesota. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so God bless you. And thank you for being people who are receptive to the move of God. It's my honor to be with you this morning. It's my joy to share worship. And uh, since this is the last service, I want to make sure that the things that have been in my heart to want to say that I say, I want to bless God for the worship ministry here, for the worship team norm I don't know where you are but God knows you <laughs> praise the Lord so so I don't know if the worship team is still present but I am very sensitive to worship my whole spirit can pick up authentic worship I can sense when people are really worshiping uh, there's some worship folks back here just watching them blesses me just looking at their demeanor just takes me into the presence of God I, I sense that the musicians went to another level and so if they're here I really bless them and if they're not I bless them and I want to tell you something about worship that is going to be key to what God is doing in the earth that back in the Old Testament when the Levites would go out first before battle, it wasn't just to sing a few little ditties, you know, because we enjoy singing. This is all about parting the water so that the king of, yeah, so that the people of God can make a positive entrance through and that the king of glory can come in. Something transformational happens. Oh boy, I feel God on me for this. You know what? When, when the Bible tells us in Psalms to magnify the Lord, that's what we do in worship. We are literally intensifying the presence of God in a place. Yes, it's almost like united together, we are bringing our own magnifying glass to a place where God's presence shines through our praise and our worship and intensifies his presence and he becomes a consuming fire. <laughs> That's the truth. Amen. My, my two brothers and I and our little destructive selves, when we were kids, we used to, and you did too, but we used to take little magnifying glasses and find paper or leaves and that kind of stuff just to watch the sun's rays do its thing and, and start to burn and consume the paper or the leaf that was under the magnifying glass. That's what worship and praise will do. So if you want things consumed in your life, if you want stuff, hatred and the lack of love burned up and consumed in the presence of God, worship. Amen. Worship. It's no little thing when we're called to worship. And so this is a continuation of worship. So I hope you don't go into spectator mode on me. I hope you don't stand now in a, a, a seat of, well, let's see what she's going to do, because we're worshiping. Amen. And this has as much to do with you as it does to do with me. So know that even though we stand up here so that you can see me, this is all about God using us, being in this place together, accomplishing his good purposes. And for that, we are glad. Amen. 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 Yes, Lord. And so my prayer is a prayer that I pray often, and it has revolutionized how I understand what God is doing. It's John chapter 5, and it's verse 19, and it says this, though it's not what I'm preaching, I'm going to pray it. Jesus said this, the son can do nothing by himself. He only does what he sees the father doing. And I have come to believe 
that Jesus was absolutely 100% always on target because of that principle. That when he comes to a place, he doesn't come to a place with his own agenda. He comes to a place looking for what the Father's doing. And then he blesses that. And so, Father, we pray that you would show us what you're doing. Show us what you're doing. Reveal to us where you're at work. And we will say, yes, Lord. Hallelujah. We will say, do your thing. Come, Lord Jesus. So even in this preaching moment, have your way. Keep us keenly aware what the Father is doing. And at the end of this day, we'll give you praise for all you accomplish in and through us in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. Our scripture text for this morning is found in the book of Esther, Old Testament text, and it is conveniently now, hallelujah for technology, bless God for the technological teams in this church, way to go, sound people, video people, God bless you, and this is what the word of the Lord says, thanks to the brothers and sisters who serve us. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathach went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. <clears throat> Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows? but that you have come to royal position. And who knows, but you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I wanna preach this morning from a simple subject, a question in fact, and that question is simply this. Who, me? I've been grappling with the thought about leadership and where it comes from. Musing on it for quite some time now. Done a lot of reading about it. 
And there's all kinds of school of thought out there about where leadership comes from. You and I have no doubt heard more than once that the phrase that says someone is a born leader. And what do we mean when we hear that or say that? Generally, it means that somebody has some skills, some innate ability, some gift set that makes us think that they were made for upfront leadership. And there are times that I see certain people, and I think it too, because we have in our minds a preconceived idea that leaders are talkative and assertive and whatever else we think. And I've got a little eight-year-old or nine, eight-year-old at home, and I tell you, she fits the bill. And there are days I think she's going to lead something, you know? I pray it's on the positive side of things, but she's she going to lead something. She's just not the follower type. So is it nature? Is that where leadership comes from? Or is it over here where others say, no, 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 you can cultivate leadership in a person's life. You can take leadership development courses and you can nurture a person into leadership so is it nature or is it nurture now my guess is that it's a little bit of both but as I studied and tried to grapple with this for myself I ran across a book whose title made me read it the title is this the 21 irrefutable laws of leadership I thought irrefutable and I must refute that <laughs> so I got the book I read through the book and it was law 19 that captured my attention law 19 you ask you want to know I knew you would <laughs> law 19 is the law of timing John Maxwell is the author, and he suggests that there are certain times when whether you wanted to or not, whether you were ready for it or not, whether you felt qualified or not, whether you had credentials or not, whether you were old enough or not, whether you were ready or not, the time lined itself up in such a way that you were in a place that leadership was demanded and you were thrust forward. Leadership, leadership, leadership. He suggested it's not just nature and not just nurture, it's also timing. Right. It's very interesting that this corroborates something that people in West Africa believe. They believe that no person is born by accident, that no person is on the planet without God's desire to have them here. They believe that no one is born unless the world needs you, that there is a reason why you are on the planet now. So they say to each other a question. They ask each other a question. And this question suggests that this that I just displayed to you is true of every human being. They'll say to each other, what called you forth? What, 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 what called you forth? And they're saying, why did the planet need you now? Why did God need you on the earth now? Why was it important for you to show up in this time period? Okay. What called you forth? What was it about this day and time that would demand you to be who you are now? to know what you know now, to be connected to who you're connected to now. Amen. I believe that it is true that things call you forth and that timing does summons leaders. Martin Luther King is an example of that. I am told that he did not volunteer to become a civil rights leader. He really was a man of substance who had plans and dreams and hopes for his life. He did not want to die at 35 years old. He wanted to be a prolific writer. He was brilliant. He went to Morehouse College at 15 years old. 
Nobel Peace Prize. 32, I think it was. That's amazing. But that all got started for him in the back, back room of a building where he and Ralph Abernathy and other civil rights leaders were gathered talking about this burgeoning movement that they could sense happening all around them. God was doing something. And they could tell, they could sense, somebody's got to speak up, somebody's got to take a stand. And then they turned to Martin and said, you're articulate, you're educated, you ought to do it. You ought to say it. And so believe it or not, Martin's first reaction was, who? Me? I got to get back to my church. I want to be a pastor and follow in my father's footsteps. I, I, I want to write books. I, I'm a philosopher. I, I don't want to lead a movement. Why don't you do it? Or you do it. Who? Me? And before you know it, whether he wanted to or not, he was thrust out to the media and he did begin to speak about it. And the rest is history. We're celebrating it tomorrow. Hadassah is another young woman who did not realize what time she was living in. She was over here in her world, minding her own business, in a little Jewish village, being raised by a surrogate dad, a borrowed father. Her mom and dad had died, and her uncle Mordecai was raising her. I don't know what had happened in Esther's life or Hadassah's life. I don't know all that went on. You've got to read between the lines to try to hear her story. But in between the lines, I feel pain and I feel hurt. I feel abandonment issues. I feel the stuff that happens when you lose your mom and dad way too soon. And I want you to know it's never, ever a good time. And so for her to be a teenager, mom and dad gone, orphaned, my guess is that she's had some emotional stuff go on. And for most of us, we would have disqualified her from leadership. Single parent family, emotional issues, maybe a little dysfunctional stuff, who knows? And she's young. God, she's just a teenager. And she's probably got hopes and dreams like any other teenager. She probably has her eye on a guy, and that guy probably has his eye on her. She wants to get married. She probably wants to get married bad. Somebody else does too, but... <laughs> she probably hoped for a family in a way that some of us can't even imagine because when your family's been fractured and broken, it makes you hope for the ideal and the dream. And she probably hoped to be a mom someday and maybe to have the family that she never got to have herself. I don't know all that was going on in Hadassah's life, but I know that she was in a nice little comfortable bubble, and it all made sense over here in her world. And she didn't know much about what was happening in places away from her. She was in her own little suburb, her own little rural community, her own little life. She was doing her own thing, and it was cool. Everything made sense, and she didn't care what happened over here in Susa. Susa, the big city, Susa, where the laws were made, Susa, where economic decisions were made, Susa, where judicial powers resided, Susa, where the king lived. She didn't go to Susa, she didn't hang in Susa, and she wasn't invited to the party that he had. The king, Xerxes, decided that he needed to have these opportunities for the people under his rule to see his splendor. So he hosted a 180-day gathering where people from all over the provinces under his rule came. The noblemen came, their wives came, and they were absolutely awed 
by his stuff. He had stuff and more stuff, and it was splendid stuff. Stuff that made people go, ooh, and ah, and they obliged as they walked in and saw all of his wealth and all of his splendor. They would immediately, uh, almost unevoked, say, ooh, and they were impressed. And then after all of that, ooh, and an iron, he culminates this thing with a seven-day party. They have a ball. I'm talking no party we've ever been to surpasses what Xerxes did. They had a party over there, a party over They had a party. <laughs> they had a real live party. Non-stop party. No expense held back party. Eat as much as you want party. Drink as much as you want party. And when you eat as much and drink as much as you want, in excess you get drunk. And that is not a good thing. Substance abuse ain't cool. You don't think straight. And Xerxes is an example of that. You make bad decisions. And so while he and his friends are stone drunk, he comes up with a real dumb idea. And he decides that he's going to send for his wife, the queen, Vashti, and have her come because he's shown them everything else and no one has ever seen the queen. And so that would really impress them. But what he didn't realize was that they didn't see the queen because they weren't supposed to see the queen. Duh! She was the queen. You don't look in her face. You lower her, your gaze when she walks in the room. You don't disrespect the king by gawking at his wife. <clears throat> he of all people knew that. But because he was drunk and he surrounded himself with political advisors who gave him very poor political advice, who were yes men and who said what he wanted to hear, they went along with this idea that Vashti should come. And so when her attendant came back to her, her gathering for the women and said, the king wants you to come and put on your tiara and like kind of come and like parade around for everybody. <laughs> Vashti said with some indignation, who? Me? He wants me to do what? He wants me to come where? Oh, no, no, he's got the wrong person. I'm certain he, he would rethink this in another time of sound judgment. Surely he doesn't want me to come and parade myself in front of his drunken friends like a common concubine. I am not a harem girl. I'm a woman. I am his wife. I have dignity. I'm royalty. I refuse. And my sister, sometimes it is more dignified to plain refuse. Sometimes you've got to know who you are, even if he doesn't. Hello, somebody. Every now and then, you've got to be willing to know your own worth and your own value and have your own sense of self-esteem. And even if he says, I love you, baby, sometimes the answer needs to be <laughs> Just no. The answer's no. No explanation, no long discussion. The answer is no. Now, when you say no, when you stand up for your worth as a child of God, when you put on limits and set your own boundaries, there may be repercussions. And that's all right. 
There are worse things that can happen than getting put out because that's exactly what's going to happen to Queen Vashti. The word comes back to the king. He's, she's not going to come. She said, no, they can't believe it. I can just imagine them on the front row talking back and forth. Yo, man, she's not going to come. <laughs> Yo, man, she said she's not coming. And, and the boys in the back are going, oh, snap, she's not coming. They can't, <laughs> they can't believe it. They, they are embarrassed for him. And the, the party goers are now looking at the king. He's embarrassed. Humiliation as opposed to feeling proud. He has been molded here in front of his friends. He doesn't know what to do. And so in trying to get back in control and trying to reassert himself and probably to pacify his drunken friends who don't want a women's movement to start of pride and dignity and worth and value. We can't have that. Other women might start knowing who they are in God, and that would be just a problem. So we must shut this down, King. We got to stop this thing, nip it in the bud. And so they decide to banish Vashti. And I want you to know that if he decides to quit you, if he calls the relationship off, if he puts you out, if banishment is the punishment, well then just put your tiara on, stand up straight, hold up your chin and give that brother the royal wave. And that's <laughs> just leave queenly. Amen. Leave like the queen that you are. Amen. Walk out of the relationship with your dignity intact. Vashti is my girl. I like her. Amen. And so Vashti leaves and the party goers are gone and the balloons are down and nobody really likes you when you're down and out. Everybody has taken everything that they can take. They drank all that they can drink and now the king is left by himself and he's sober now, absolutely clear-minded. And he knows he's made a huge mistake. He's depressed. Does he repent? No. Apologize to his wife? No. And those same political advisors who have already given him poor political advice continue to do so. And they advise him to have now a beauty contest. And this beauty contest is to be throughout all of the provinces under his rule. And they are to sweep up all of the beautiful young virgins, the maidens under his rule, to bring them all back. And he gets to choose the fairest of them all to be his new queen. He thinks this good. I don't really like this king. <laughs> I don't like kings who don't think for themselves. Doesn't work for me very well. I don't like him sober. I don't like him drunk. I don't like this king. <laughs> and so he goes with this idea. And so over here where laws are being made and economic decisions are being transacted and judicial uh, 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 plans are being put into practice. All of this is happening in the capital city unbeknownst to a young girl named Hadassah. She's minding her own business. She doesn't even vote over here. She doesn't even know what's going on. She doesn't read the paper from that part of town. <laughs> but one day, when she was totally not expecting it, probably going along with her life as usual. The king's officials arrived to her village and she is beautiful and she is swept up with all the other young beautiful women. And in a last ditch effort to try to keep his little girl safe, Mordecai, her dad says, don't tell anybody your ethnic identity. Don't tell anybody your ethnic heritage. Do not let them know you're a Jew. Okay. Now I ask you, because this is how I read the Bible. Why? Why would Mordecai say that? Why didn't he say, do your best? Hadassah, 
Try hard. Well, I think we know the answer, don't we? Yeah, we do. Because their time is not that foreign from our time. I think that Mordecai knew that his daughter was going into a place that was unlike her and that she might not be judged fairly over here, that because of her ethnic identity, she might not be given a fair shake. She might be seen through colored glasses that limit her qualifications. She was clearly beautiful enough, but she might not get the chance to win on her qualifications because people would be looking through her through ethnic lenses. Because the truth is, my brothers and my sisters, we aren't always judged by the content of our character more than we'd like to admit people are judged by the color of their skin and so Mordecai says to her assimilate blend into the dominant culture over there and I'm telling you there are people in our communities all over the place who have lost their sense of identity because somewhere they've heard the message consciously or unconsciously you will never succeed in this country unless you do it just like them you're gonna to have to walk like them talk like them eat like them speak like them all right. and there are people probably sitting here today for whom that is true I remember my daughter Mia in her second grade, first grade class, it was last year. A little Korean girl, Dayoon, is in her class and Dayoon brought her lunch. And her lunch was a traditional Korean lunch that her mom had made for her with as much love as I'd made my sandwich, whatever I'd made for Mia. And when the kids opened their lunches to eat, the kids in her first grade class all looked at Dayoon's lunch and said, ooh. And because they frowned, and because they ridiculed, even as little first graders, because it was different from their lunch, she never brought a lunch like that again. She learned to assimilate and to bring what we would bring for lunch because there's pressure on people to succeed and do it our way. Say amen, somebody. Amen. And does it work? Yeah, it works. Hadassah wins the concert, uh, the contest. She's intelligent enough to win. She's bilingual, praise God. So she doesn't call herself Hadassah, she calls herself Esther. She doesn't speak in her native tongue, she speaks in the tongue over here in Persia. And she's able to do both, she's educated. And so for those of you pursuing education, it could save your life. Not a bad thing to go to school. And for all of us, it's not a bad thing to start taking a second language. Yo aprendiendo habla español. Si, amen, hallelujah. Porque es muy importante. If you haven't read the census lately, I want you to know everybody's not speaking English. <laughs> and we are some of the only people on the globe who only are limited to one. It would be very important to learn more than one language because the world's changing all around us. And because Hadassah was cultured and because she was educated and because she was godly and there was something beautiful both outside and inside about this young woman, she wins the contest and she becomes the queen and she is now kicking it over here in Susa. She's in the palace, she's got beauty treatments 12 months long, hallelujah. I mean, things are going well. She didn't plan it, it wasn't what she hoped, it wasn't her own dreams, but I mean, it ain't bad, it ain't bad. 
bad. People waiting on your hand and foot, and she becomes very, very, very comfortable with the power and the position and the privilege that she's gotten over here in Susa. Power, position, privilege. And she likes it. It's working for her. Until one day, she looks out of the window and she sees Mordecai. And Mordecai is messed up. He is crying and wailing and he's all dressed. Ugh. She can't believe him. He's a wreck. So she sends out clothes to him. He sends the clothes back because he won't be placated and he won't be pacified this time. What Mordecai is saying to us is some things are worth crying about. Some things ought to make us weep. We ought not be able to read the newspaper and just pass it on and then get right from the weather report to somebody's been shot and it not make us take a pause break. Something about that ought to double us over every now and then. We can't hear about mudslides and, and earthquakes and, and people going down in other places around the world and they're not kind of go, oh God. Amen. Amen. And for those people who try to silence us, Mordecai gives us an example of what to do. Send the clothes back. Don't accept them. However they're trying to buy our silence, don't take it. If it's a grant, if it's a scholarship, if it's money, if it's a new job, a new car, what is it that they do to keep us quiet? Mordecai says, cry loud and spare not. Do not stop yelling. Christians, send the clothes back. What if they promised you to get you not to say nothing? <laughs> That's a black thing. Whatever they promise, Mordecai sends the clothes back. It's not worth it because some things ought to make us cry. Some things ought to get enough conviction in us to make us stand up for it. And so Mordecai refuses the clothes and not only does he refuse the clothes, he says to Esther, get in the game. Lace your shoes up and get in the game. We need you off the bench and we need you off the bench now. It's time. It's time. He said to Haythatch, explain everything to her, tell her what's going on out here. She's not reading the news. She's getting filtered information, and so are we. She's isolated with the power and the privilege and the position that she's gotten, and she's comfortable with it, and so are we. And, and somebody's got to shake her out of her comfort zone, and so do we. Somebody's got to help her become aware of what's going on outside of her own holy huddle. Open the doors of the palace and tell that girl what's going on out here. Something's happening in the world all around her and she's ignorant of it. She's isolated from it. She has made herself insulated from what's happening with people. Tell her what's happening with people. Because assimilation works when it's only about you. It's time to get in the game when you realize it's about people. And so, hate that you explains to her, there's a guy named Haman. Haman has been uh, appointed to a very high position in the government, and he's ego-tripping. I don't know what this is all about for him, but he has a need for people to bow when he enters the room. I don't know, he could have been short, I don't know, but whatever the problem was, he had this huge need for, for respect in a very uh, demonstrative way, and everybody complied. I'm sure there were Jews who went right down on their knees except for one guy. You guessed it. Mordecai wouldn't do it stood up straight as a board and every time Haman saw him it made him absolutely sick he was livid and usually 
when one person does something that makes me mad or makes you mad, we're supposed to take out our beef or have our disagreement with that one person, right? Ah, but that's unless race or ethnicity is attached to the issue. Whenever race or ethnicity gets attached to the issue, then we generalize. That's called a stereotype. And we decide that everybody is like that one person. So let one black man steal something. God help us all because then everybody is the potential thief in the room. Amen, somebody. That's just the truth. Amen. Let one Latino do something and then all Latinos are. Amen. Let one white man not be able to jump, then no white man can... <laughs> <laughs> White man. <laughs> and that's the way we do this thing when race comes into the picture. And so we begin to, to generalize to whole groups of people and everybody's the same way and we lump everybody into the same group. White people are like this and black people are like this and so it goes. And so Haman now feels justified in annihilating all of them because whenever you stop making it personal and there's no other names and faces, you're no longer Brad and I'm not Brenda, you're not Dave or whatever our names are, we're just black or we're just white or we're just Filipinos or we're just whatever you call us. As soon as we wipe faces off people, it gives us some sort of an ability to just wipe them all out. Palestinians gone. And so he says to the king, give me permission to annihilate them all. You ought not tolerate them. Oh, this little tolerance thing we got going here about tolerating people, don't tolerate them. Down with tolerance. I don't want it anymore. Don't even put up with them. Wipe them out. And that's what the king gives him permission to do. Because Haman promises to make it worth his while. He says to him, I will put money into the royal treasury if you allow me to do this. Now, I don't know the king's motivation, but it's very interesting that the text says that he's offered money for the, for the destruction of these people. And I have come to become absolutely convinced that where we sell pesticides in Mexico and they can't be used in America and people are being killed because of them, okay. somebody's making money. Right. Where crack cocaine is flourishing and people are being annihilated in mass, somebody's making money. And they don't live in the hood. No, no, no. They live closer to where we live. Yes. Yeah. Oh, and they, they work in very nice high-rise buildings. And they wear very nice white crisp shirts. They go to lunch at very nice restaurants. Oh, yeah, we respect them. They, they, they get on the covers of magazines. They're making huge dollars on the destruction of people's lives. And Mordecai says to Esther, and he says to me, and he says to you, we ought to care about that. Get in the game, Esther, because don't think that because this doesn't directly impact you that somehow you'll get to escape from it. You've got to come and be a part of this. You've got to get involved. You've got to do your part. And Esther's response to that was, who? <laughs> Me? Oh, please, no, you don't understand. I just won the beauty contest. <laughs> The truth is, I'm really not even qualified to be the queen. I just, I just happen to be pretty. I'm a girl, for God's sake. You know what? It's against the rules. Do you know the law with this? The law is that I'm not supposed to do it. I could get in trouble. Now, Mordecai, you love me. You would not ask me to put myself in risk, would you? I couldn't do that. Surely you know that this would jeopardize my job. 
And Mordecai said to Hathach, go back and let her, let her know this, tell her this. Don't think, first of all, that because you choose to ignore social problems that they go away and they won't someday impact you. Don't think that because you're in the king's palace, wherever your little palace happens to be, okay. you name it, yeah. that because you're in Woodland Hills or wherever you happen to reside, wherever my nice little enclave is, that somehow the stuff that's happening to people all around us won't someday impact us. Okay. He says, so be aware of that, Esther. You're not going to get away because you turn your head and ignore the problem. But more importantly, if you keep silent at such a time as this, comma, oh, do I love a comma? It gives you a chance to pause. Now, what I thought he was supposed to say at that comma, who'll do it? If you keep silent, who will go for us? If you don't say something, who will say something? If you don't get involved, who will help? You're the only person who can do it. You're closest to the king. You've got access. We need you, Esther. Please. That's not what he says. He says, if you keep silent at such a time as this comma, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. He's basically saying, Esther, now don't be confused. Don't think somehow that God can't move because you choose to be disobedient. Oh, au contraire. Please don't think that, that somehow God's kingdom can't come because you won't lace up your shoes and get your part uh, involved. Don't think that one monkey stops God's show. Oh, no. Oh, no. God will do what God says God will do because he's God. He'll use somebody else. He'll, he'll use somebody else. You don't have to get involved. The Bible says that the rocks would cry out if we stopped worshiping God. God has a witness. And God will always have a witness. The issue is whether or not you'll miss your opportunity. This is about your chance, Esther. It's not about whether or not God can do it. God can do it. But will he get to use you? Will you understand why you were on the planet? Will you get to find out what called you forth? Will you get to know why the planet needed you now? And I think on some level, Esther said, oh, 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 now when you put it that way, <laughs> oh, this is about my destiny. This is about my defining moment. This is my opportunity to discover why I was born. And that's exactly what Sir Winston Churchill says happens for every one of us. And I quote, he says this, there comes a time in every person's life when they are given the unique opportunity to discover the purpose for which they were born. It is their moment of destiny. And if they seize it, and if they seize it, it becomes their finest hour. And so... I ask you, my brothers and my sisters, as I get ready to close this thing in answer to the question, who, me? God says, yes, you. Now, Esther understands that there's no guarantees. There's no guarantees to how this is going to turn out. She knows she's going to need God's help, even though she feels a stirring in her soul and she knows that she's got to respond. She says to Mordecai, I'm not going to go out in my own strength and in my own wisdom. Pray for me. 
You fast and you pray and I will do the same thing. And then after we fast and pray and consult God for a plan, I'll do it. And I don't know how this thing is going to turn out. I can go down in flames, but if I perish, I perish. But I'm sure going to die trying. <laughs> because if I go out, I want to go out on the Lord's side. And so, what called you forth? Why are you a member of Woodland Hills Church? Why have you been visiting here so consistently? Why does God have you where you are now? Why do you know who you know who you know? Why are you in that company now? Why do you go to the college of the universe? Where, where, where is God taking you? What is God doing with the friendships that are starting to come to you and you're not even asking for them? Who, me, yes, you. Yes, you, teenage you. Yes, you, unemployed you. Yes, you, stay-at-home mom, you. Yes, you, senior citizen, you, yes. Yes, you. Who, me? Yes. African-American, you. Yes, you. Who, me? Yes. Female, you. Who, me? Yes, you. I don't want to do it. Yes. Single parent, you. Yes. Just went through a divorce, you. Yes. Who, me? Yes. Dysfunctional, you. Yes, God wants you. God wants you. Amen. God wants you. Yes, God wants you. Yes, 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 God wants you. Praise God. Stand to your feet. Let's pray. Hallelujah. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Hallelujah. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Hallelujah. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Hallelujah. <laughs> Praise God. I got to quit, so let me give you an opportunity to respond to the word of God. Amen? No sense in preaching like this and not give you a chance to say, yeah, Lord, you're talking to me. And so if you could give me two more minutes or so because it's a holy moment here. And so those of you moving, don't move unless you show enough got to because people are about to make some decisions with God. Folks are about to do some business with God, so honor his presence. I don't know who I'm talking to, but I can tell you for a certainty I wouldn't be here if he wasn't looking for you. And I don't know what you've done to disqualify yourself from leadership. And you've heard the challenge before that they needed you and somehow you had reasons. You were too busy. You were too young. You were too inexperienced. You were in school. You were CEO. Heard somebody say fear. You too cool. You were on a sports team and coach won't let you. I don't know what your reasons have been, but I can hear in my spirit the phrase, no more excuses. God wants us to give up the excuses because he's trying to get his people in line. He's trying to orchestrate a movement here, folks, and it's bigger than you and it's bigger than me. It's more than what we think it is. And if Christians would just be obedient to the Spirit of God and line themselves up with what he's doing, we'd see a move in the earth right this moment in time, comparable to the civil rights movement that took care, place years ago. God's moving in the earth, I'm telling you. And he's going to do it with or without our cooperation. But it would be so much better with it. You'd love it better. You'd like it better. You would be glad that you were in this thing called life when it's all over. So let me give you an opportunity to respond to God. Would you bow your heads? Amen. Would you search your hearts? Is God talking to anybody in here? If so, would you just raise your hand where you are as a first sign to God that you hear him beckoning you, Esther? You are in some palace that you like a lot, and he's asking you to step outside of the comfort of what you know. 
I don't know who you are, but I can sense I'm talking to a person of color. And you've been thinking about this church and you have not made it your commitment because there's too many white people here and you're trying to pick, pick a place that's more, I think you're African-American. If I'm talking to you, God is saying, put your oar in the water here. Now, if that's a specific word, hurry up and raise your hand for that because he doesn't do that by accident. Respond to the word of God. Who am I talking to? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. All over the building, I'm telling you, there's a young guy here. I don't know who you are, but I sense there's an athlete. Whoever I'm talking to about an athlete, God's going to use an athlete in a very strategic and significant way. And you've been just real good at sports. But the fact that people follow you as a team leader is significant. And God wants to redeem that. Who am I talking to? Praise you, Jesus. Raise your hands now, people of God. Respond to him. I've said this every single service, and I'll say it again. Teenagers, I don't know who I'm talking to, but teenagers, God's going to use you in a magnificent way in this era. Your generation will be called the reconciliation generation, and I'm telling you, God wants you to enlist. Oh, my God, I feel his presence for this. I bless you, Lord. I bless you, Lord. I can sense that if I do this, I'm going to flood this altar, but I feel like you're supposed to present yourselves to God. So, Pastor Greg, would you please come and join me here? And people, what I see in my mind's eye is just the army of God beginning to stand just in front of the altar, almost saying, I'm reporting for duty. So those of you who sense God speaking to you, just come stand in front of your pastor. Just come stand in front of your pastor and don't take a long time. Just come stand and present yourself before God. Say, here I am. Here I am. Here I am. That's right. God bless you. God bless you. Now, if you didn't raise your hand and you know I'm talking to you, don't let the Holy Spirit move like this and you uh, resist him. Come as close as you can this way, please. God bless you. And then just stand up straight. That's right. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Couples, respond to God. We've disqualified ourselves because we thought we knew what leadership looked like. And we keep saying no because we've got a preconceived idea of what it looks like. But he's going to use us outside of the boundaries of these walls. He's going to use you in your communities and in your schools in ways that are significant. But you've got to present yourself. Fill this altar. Fill this altar. Fill this altar. Fill this altar. Just say, Lord, I present myself. I'm ready for duty. I present myself. Reporting for duty, Lord. Esther, come forth. In Jesus' name, yes. Esther, come forth, come forth, come forth, come forth, come forth, come forth. You with the drama in your life who felt that your emotional state wouldn't let you be used by God. God heals you in your service. God heals you in your service. God heals you in your service. Amen. He heals you in his service. You come and you bring your broken pieces. And he's going to use you in his service. Hallelujah. Praise you, God. Praise you, God. Praise you, God. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> Hallelujah, God. Thank you, Brenda, for... Can we thank her thank for preaching you, that message? Amen, amen, amen. Hallelujah. Praise God. Every syllable of that message was the heart of God. Every syllable of it was. I want to end this way. Would you, those who are in the audience, just extend your hands towards this group of people here. And you who are up front here, you just wait on God and, and let God confirm that decision that you're making. You know, 90% of the game is showing up. You know that? 
most people don't step into their destiny because they just don't show up. It's being willing to say, I'll take a swing. I don't know how I can hit, but I'll take a swing. I'll walk through that door. You don't know what's beyond that door, but you feel like God's saying walk through that door. You don't need to know how God's going to use you. Esther didn't know what was going to come of her, but uh, she was willing to do it. And, and that's the heart that God's looking for. You say, okay, I will, for such a time as this, I don't know what the time is, I don't know what the this is, but I'm saying yes to you, Lord. I'm saying yes to you, Lord. And, and, and with a heart like that, God will, God will use you. He'll find the moments, he'll find the time, he'll find the occasions, and you'll find yourself doing stuff you never dreamed, uh, being used for the kingdom of God. So, Lord, we right now pray for these people who have made this commitment here, God, to be an Esther heart, to have an Esther heart, an Esther spirit before you, Lord God. Who, me, yes, you, yes, you. God, every one of us, every one of us, despite the wounds and the past and the failures, the mistakes, maybe even the ongoing struggles we're in right now, God, are uniquely designed by you and crafted. Even the, the, the negative stuff in our past, you used to craft us for a unique role in the kingdom. We're vital for the kingdom, Lord. And there's such joy and such peace and power when we step through that door and, and say, I, I'll do it, Lord. I'll do it, Lord. Father, I pray for every person in this auditorium here who is uh, making that commitment. God, Holy Spirit, seal it. Seal it. The devil will try to get them to compromise it as soon as they walk out of this door. Uh, the, the, the enemy will, will try to get them to question it or to fall back into old patterns of thinking. I'm just an unimportant person who's going to be a pew sitter all my life. It's a lie from the pit of hell. And so, Lord, seal the commitment right here and right now. There's a magnificent army here, Lord, that you can use in, in, in a tremendous way. I don't think we have any idea of just what your plans are with this body and, 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 and in, in relationship to the Church of the Twin Cities, but every one of us can be used. Seal it, Holy Spirit. Let your love fall upon them. Begin to give them, even right now, the satisfaction of knowing that they're walking in your pocket, <laughs> that, that, that they're, they're anointed by you, Lord God. Let it happen, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.